All right, if you have a Bible, I'd like to encourage you to pick, pick it up and open with me to that passage that Janine just read. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it's, it's gonna, we're going to begin at the very end of chapter 2, verse 17, and then we're going to go through chapter 3 this morning. So go ahead and make your way there. If you don't have a Bible, let me just encourage you, grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, uh, take that home with you. That can be your Bible, okay? So feel free to take that with you today. And if you have a hard time finding First Thessalonians, you can look. There's a table of contents at the very beginning that will give you a, a page number to find that this morning. So go ahead and make your way there. Today we're continuing a study that we have called Grace and Peace to You, which of course is a statement that the Apostle Paul makes at the very beginning of, of this very personal letter to a church full of new believers in the city of Thessalonica. That's why this letter is called 1 Thessalonians. It's a personal letter written by Paul to this new church. Earlier in their ministry, Paul and his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, had gone throughout Thessalonica preaching the gospel, right? They had planted this church. They had told the people in Thessalonica who Jesus was and what he had done. They had told them how he was the, the Messiah that they had been waiting for, that he had lived a perfect life, that he had died on the cross for their sin and was resurrected. He was Lord and worthy of their allegiance and their trust. Well, as they went throughout the city of Thessalonica proclaiming this good news, Acts 17, which is where you find this whole story, tells us that many people in Thessalonica gave their lives to Jesus. They put their trust in Jesus, and even some of the leaders began to do this. This was a very exciting time in the city of Thessalonica. The only problem is that the only people excited about it were the Christians themselves, right? As Mike's talked about over these last few weeks, uh, it's kind of like a, if the Warriors were to go on and win the championship, which I would assume is a big if still, right? Game seven, it's coming. But if they were to go win... All of us would be excited, but the rest of the nation, what? They're not excited. They want the Warriors to lose. Well, that's kind of what was happening here. There was a small group that shared this excitement. These Christians were ecstatic about their new salvation that they've experienced through Jesus, but no one else was happy about it. You had the Jewish leaders who were unhappy about it. You had the Romans and the Roman leaders who were unhappy about it. All of them saw this Jesus movement as a problem simply to be squashed, right? They wanted it to end. And so the fact that it was growing and it was gaining ground in the city of Thessalonica, they were not happy about that. In fact, it was in Thessalonica that they first said this about Christians. They made this statement that Christians are turning the world upside down. Now, in that day, that was not a compliment, right? They were happy with the status quo. They were doing really well with the status quo. And yet these Christians come in, this message of Jesus and who he is and what he had done had begun to turn the city upside down. Well, Acts 17 goes on to tell us that uh, as they continue to proclaim the gospel, that these leaders begin to get crowds of people and they, they kind of whip the, the whole city into an uproar, false accusations against Paul and his co-workers. And eventually what they do, they drove Paul and Timothy and Silas out of the city. Well, as soon as Paul and them were out of the city, what did they seek to do? They sought to discredit Paul. They wanted these new believers to turn their back on their newfound faith. They, they wanted to convince all these new Christians that Paul isn't the kind of guy that they really thought he was. And so as you look at this text, it seems like one of the statements that they would make about Paul is that he actually didn't care about these new Thessalonian, Thessalonian believers. 
that Paul had abandoned them. They were looking at Paul and saying, he's not here. He left you, right? He doesn't really care about you. He's gone down to some other city to, to do a work. He does not care about you. They were trying to discredit him. Well, in this letter, what you find in this section that we're going to be reading today is Paul's rebuttal to that argument. In essence, what Paul is trying to do in this passage is he is trying to show these new Christians without a doubt how he feels about them. And the result is that we have one of the most um, vivid, beautiful descriptions of genuine Christian affection that you will find in all of the Bible. I mean, you read this passage, you cannot help but hear the love that Paul, Timothy, and Silas had for these Christians that they had been removed from because of persecution and tribulation. They'd been kicked out of the city, and now they wanted to be with them again. If you would, look with me at verse uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. He makes a statement that I, I want you to try to come to grips with this morning because it's a really remarkable statement. Here's what he says. This is Paul, Timothy, and Silas talking about the Thessalonians. They say this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I want you to think about that statement because it is utterly remarkable what he says here. What he is saying here is that on the day Jesus returns in all of his glory, on the day that they stand before their risen Savior face to face, the reality that will give them great joy, the one thing that they will hold up to Jesus as a sign of a life well lived is what? It's the spiritual maturity of these people that they had invested their lives in. That's what he's saying in this passage. He says, you Thessalonians are our joy and our crown of boasting. Now, when you think about that phrase, crown of boasting, that doesn't mean anything to us. But, but to those original hearers, they would have known exactly what he's talking about. This crown is not a crown for a king. The crown that he's talking about is a crown that would be given to athletes after a sporting event. The victor would stand and they would come and they'd put a, a little crown of, 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 of kind of these um, branches, olive branches. And so they'd put this on their head and recognition, not only for their victory, but also for their labor and effort that went into that victory. And so when Paul says, you are my crown of boasting, here's what he's saying. He's saying your spiritual growth, your spiritual health, it is the crown of boasting that I will hold up proudly with great joy when I meet my Savior face to face. Now, as I read that this week, it caused me to ask a lot of questions about my own personal ministry, my interactions with people, the way that I invest my life. And here I want to throw some questions at you this morning. Think about this. When Jesus returns... And you stand before him face to face. And it is not just Paul and the the apostles that will have to give an account of their lives and ministry. It's every Christian, right? So when you stand before him face to face, I wonder what will you have to hold up with great joy? What, What this morning, what will your crown of boasting be? When you're face to face with Jesus, do you think on that day that you will hold up proudly your academic achievements and your grades? Do you think on that day when you come face to face with Jesus that you will find great joy in the the fact that you were a parent that was able to give your kids a lot of good experiences in life? 
Do you think you will hold up with, with great boldness and joy before your Savior the fact that you were able to lead an organization well or that you were able to get a certain number into your bank account? Do you think you're going to hold up your morality or your, your Sunday morning church attendance on that day? What do you think you will be able to hold up with joy in the presence of your Savior? What Paul is submitting for us this morning is this, that a Christian's joy and honor before Christ will be elevated by one thing, and that is the presence of the people that we have poured our lives into so that they may know and love Jesus. The investment of our life that we have made in other people. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this one statement down because I think it boils down this whole text that we're reading today. So write this down. It's going to be on the screen. The mark of true, genuine affection for other people is that you are completely invested in their spiritual health and growth. The mark of true, genuine affection, of true, genuine love for another person is that you are invested in their spiritual health and growth. Which means this, if we say that we love the non-believers in our families, if we say we love the non-believers in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods, what that is saying is it should be demonstrated by the way that we are investing our lives in them so that they could know Jesus. In the same way, if we say that we love one another in this church family, which I think all of us would say, yes, I love my church family. Well, what Paul is saying here is that it will be demonstrated in the way that we give our lives to investing in one another, that each person in this room would know Jesus more, that they would grow in their spiritual maturity. Now, I realize that this morning, that may seem unrealistic. You may say, well, well, yeah, that's Paul, right? He's the apostle. He wrote most of the New Testament. Of course, he would say that about these people that he had invested in. But friends, you need to understand, the New Testament says this over and over again, that one of the true marks of a true believer is how we love one another, how we invest our lives into one another. In fact, when Paul prays for the Thessalonians, I love it at the very end. If you look at chapter 3, go down to verse 12. Paul's praying for this group, and I want you to hear what he prays for them. He says this, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. How? As we do for you. So in other words, what he is saying is, this kind of love that I have for you, Thessalonians is the same kind of love you're to have for one another. And then he says, who? For all, which he's talking about a world that is desperately in need of Jesus. He says, imitate my kind of love that I have for you in your relationships with one another. So really what we have in this text is a a demonstration of what true, genuine love looks like. In the body of Christ and the way that we love the non-believers in our lives, what does that practically look like? Well, this tells us three things. Number one, genuine affection for other people is demonstrated through an ongoing investment of time together. It's demonstrated through an ongoing investment of time. He says in verse 17, I want you to hear how much he desires to spend time with them. Verse 17 But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. 
because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And that phrase, we were torn away from you, literally means we were made orphans. Uh, This is very harsh language. It's painful language. The picture he's trying to paint is a parent who has lost a child. Now, if you've ever walked through that horrible experience or you've walked alongside someone else who has experienced that, you know there's almost nothing that compares to the pain of a parent that loses a child. And yet that's the kind of pain that Paul is talking about here. He says, I was torn away from you. It wasn't my desire that I'd be away from you, but they literally tore us away from you. But the result is what? That Paul says, now I earnestly endeavor to be with you face to face. I strive, I toil, I will do everything in my power to spend more time with you. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Rachel and I celebrated our our 12th wedding anniversary. It wasn't very spectacular. I did uh, yard work. Rachel hung out in the house. It was very exciting. But a little fun fact about Rachel and I's dating relationship, the very first day that we lived in the same city was the day we got married. So Rachel and I, literally our entire dating relationship was long distance. And that was horrible. I'd see her every weekend or at least most weekends. And and I always dreaded Sunday afternoon because I knew when Sunday afternoon came, that was the time we would have to say goodbye again. Every time it was painful. I didn't want to see her go or most of the time she was traveling because I worked at a church. So she took more of the brunt of that than I did, thankfully. I'm very grateful to her for that. But every time it was painful, and yet that pain did what? It caused both of us to do whatever it took to get back together that next weekend, right? Didn't matter how many hours had to be driven, how many late nights had to be lived out. We were going to do whatever was possible to spend as much time as we could. That's what true, genuine affection does to a person. The question is, do we truly love one another like that? I mean, right now, today, is there anyone that you can point to that you say, I earnestly endeavor to meet with that person as much as possible so that I can help them grow in their spiritual walk? So that I can help them know Jesus, or if they know Jesus, I can help them take one step closer to Jesus. Is there anybody that you could point to this morning? You see, whether you realize it or not, what this text tells us is that there is an enemy who is constantly at work to keep you from having those kinds of relationships. What does Paul say? He says, I earnestly endeavored, I toiled, I planned, I did everything I could, but what? But Satan hindered us. Now that that word hindered is a military term. It was used in that day of soldiers that would, would destroy the road so that the advancing army could advance no more. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying Satan is constantly at work seeking to hinder any of these Christian relationships from happening. He does not want the advance of the gospel. He doesn't want the advance of spiritual maturity. And one of the ways that he hinders it is through keeping us from loving one another like this text tells us to. Now, exactly how did Satan do that? We don't know. You can read commentary after commentary, and they will give you a number of great options. But the reality is none of those options are found in the text. He doesn't tell us what happened. He simply says there are circumstances that he sees Satan hands behind that keep Christian relationships from happening so that the advance of the gospel, the advance of maturity doesn't happen. I wonder here in America, in our common 
current culture, what would that look like? Well, I think one of the things, one of the key hindrances, if we're just honest, is our busy schedules. I mean, you think about our priorities. I believe that many of us are tempted to believe the lie that almost anything we have in our life is more important than pouring into others for the sake of helping them to grow spiritually. It doesn't matter if we're looking at our work life or our family life or our weekend schedules. Literally, I wonder if any of us in this moment, if we looked at our calendar, would be able to say, yes, I am investing my time in someone else's spiritual growth. I'm investing my time in my own spiritual growth so that I can actually have something to invest in another person. All, far too often we fill our calendars with activities and kids events and kids sporting events and work schedules and all these things. And we leave other Christians behind. We say you're really not that much of a priority. Paul, on the other hand, did not leave relationships to chance. He knew he had to fight for them. He knew that if he was going to have these relationships, it was going to take, in his words, an earnest endeavor that he would endeavor eagerly for one another. Let's get specific this morning. It takes great intentionality and resolve to have the kind of relationships that you see in this text. Why? Because it takes time. It takes resolve to navigate public transit and traffic and parking to be part of a community group in this church, right? All of you who try to be part of community groups, you know that it takes resolve to, to say this is going to be a priority every single week or every other week, whatever your community group meets. It takes resolve to get up early in the morning to meet with a couple brothers or sisters in Christ in order to encourage one another in the faith before you go to work. It takes resolve to invite other people to lunch after Sunday service instead of going quickly to your Sunday nap, right? That takes great resolve for that. It takes resolve to step away from a relaxing night of Netflix to Make that call to that hurting individual who's going through a hard time. It takes resolve to pray continuously day after day for our coworkers when you see no spiritual change. It takes resolve to invite your neighbors over to your house for dinner when all you want to do is spend time alone or relaxing with your family. These kind of relationships that Paul had takes resolve. Paul said no to many things so that he could say yes to these relationships he was investing in. He said no so that he could say yes to that which was more important, that which he could hold up to Jesus on the day of Jesus' return. One of the problems with these kind of relationships, if we're just very honest this morning, is that there's always the prospect that these relationships could lead to pain, right? Because like Paul, at the end of the day, we can invest our time, we can invest our energy, but there's no way that we can make someone grow in Christ. We face rejection, we, re- we face the pain that, that they may fall away. And so many of us, we, we struggle with this concept, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to say no to all these things, to sacrifice all these things so that I can pour into another person's life so that they can grow spiritually? Is it really worth it? I see this especially in this city, and if I'm just be real, this church and in my own heart. I think this is especially true for those of you who have been in San Francisco for a good amount of time. Because here's what happens, does it not? You invest in someone spiritually. You pour your heart into them. Your heart gets intertwined with theirs, just like Paul talks about here. You invest your time, your energy, your prayer life. You pour your life into a they begin to grow. And then what happens? They move. 
always in this city. You're pouring in and then they leave. You're pouring in and then they leave. You're pouring in and then they leave. And there's the great danger in a very transient city like San Francisco for us to look around and to look at relationships and say, you know what? It is not worth it anymore. And all of a sudden, while we may be in relationship with the people in this church and the relationship in the people in our schools and our workplaces, outwardly, we may look like we're open. Inwardly, our heart is very cold. It's very closed off. We say, I don't want to experience the pain again of pouring in and then having that people go. Some other church, some other individuals got to reap the benefits of all my hard work. Church family, I'm asking you this morning, if you still have breath in your lungs and you are still here in this city, the reason you are here is that you are called to invest in other people's spiritual lives. You are called to invest in their spiritual health. You are called to help them to know Jesus. And then when they know Jesus, to help them take one step closer to Jesus. As I prayed for you this week and as I prayed over this passage, this one kept coming to mind. And it may be that it's my own heart. And I acknowledge that. I know in my own heart I've struggled with this because we've poured in and then you see people move. But here's the thing, friends. It does not matter how much pain we experience in this life of pouring into people. It will not compare to the joy of standing aside with those individuals for eternity around the throne of Christ. That's what Paul says in this passage. I may be torn away from you, but I eagerly endeavor to pour my life into you because I know I hold you up to Christ on that day. Well, the question becomes, what do we do in these relationships? Okay, Ryan, I get it. I'm called to invest my time into the other people in this church, to pick a few people in this church and pour my life into them. What are we called to do together? Well, that's what he moves into next. He says, genuine affection for other people is demonstrated through an ongoing determination to strengthen faith. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. If you look at that text and you go throughout the New Testament, constantly Paul uses two words to describe what his goal is in Christian relationships. And I want you to ask yourself, do you have these goals in your relationships with the other people in this church? Are these your primary purpose in those relationships? He says that he sends Timothy to what? To establish and to exhort. Now, what does it mean to establish? To establish someone means to strengthen them so that they do not fall. Uh, Now, this is something that I'm trying to teach my youngest daughter, May. May loves to build towers out of blocks, but the problem is she loves to build them as high as she can, but she does not have the concept of a foundation, right? So she builds it and she just keeps going up, doesn't build out, just up, and what's going to happen eventually? Leans over and then it goes down and then we've got tears, okay? This is the constant thing in my house. So as a dad, what do I want to do? As she starts to build that tower, I come alongside and I'm saying, hey, May, stop real quick. We need to add a block here, right? 
We need to add a block here. It's missing a foundation. You can't just grow. You've got to actually have a foundation that will enable that growth. Well, that's the picture of what Paul tries to do with the believers in his life. He sends Timothy, he says, to establish their faith. You see, there were parts of their Christian life. There were parts, foundation doctrine that they just didn't know. They had missing blocks, they had missing foundation pieces. And so Timothy's goal was to go in and to provide that which was lacking in their faith. Maybe for some of you, you need to go alongside a brother or sister in Christ and teach them how to read and apply the Bible. It's as simple as that. Maybe the block that you need to add to another believer is how to pray. Maybe it's a a doctrine that somebody misunderstands or or doesn't understand at all. Maybe it's a biblical truth, but we are called in our relationships with one another to establish one another, to look and say, where where are they lacking in their faith? How can I strengthen that faith so that they do not fall? That's what it means to establish. And that's also why God's word needs to be at the center of our relationships. If we're establishing, how does that happen? It happens as we help communicate God's word to one another. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, and that's talking about you plural, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We are called to establish one another, to give truth, to supply what is lacking in one another's faith. It's not just new Christians that need this. It's each one of us. We need to establish one another. But the second thing he says is what? That we're called to also exhort. Uh, Sometimes what what we need is not a new truth, right? For most of you, if you've been in the church very long, you know truth. You know the Bible. You know these things. But instead, you don't need truth. You need to be encouraged. You need to be exhorted. You need to be reminded of that truth. And here's the thing. This is when exhortation is really needed is often in the midst of affliction. When an individual or a, or a married couple or a family is going through a trial, they're going through a, a hard decision, they're going through a difficult circumstance. It is in those moments, Christians, that we tend to forget what we know, right? We tend to forget. We tend to take our eyes off of Jesus and all of a sudden our doubts come to the surface. Our idols come to the surface, our hard things that we, we, we've been putting to the surface, all of a sudden they come up. And we need in those moments the body of Christ to come and to speak truth that we need. We need to be exhorted, not established, but exhorted, reminded of the truth that we know. Friends, we need to do this in one another's lives. God has put us in life, in community with one another to exhort one another in those moments when we've taken our eyes off of Christ when we've forgotten the truths that we should know. We are called to establish and exhort. The last thing we see in this text is this. Genuine affection for other people is demonstrated through an ongoing persistence in prayer. Look at verse 9. He says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. You see, there are a lot of impressive things about the Apostle Paul. I mean, his missionary journeys, the way that he proclaims the gospel. I will tell you this. One of the most impressive things that has always stood out to me about Paul is Paul's prayer life. 
It doesn't matter what church he's talking to, whether it's the church here in Thessalonica or Corinth or Philippi. When Paul talks to these individuals, what does he say? I have been praying for you day and night, which is another way of just saying, I'm praying for you all the time. He says, Thessalonians, I am praying for you earnestly because I know the stakes are high, because I know your soul, your spiritual maturity is at risk. I am constantly bringing you before the Father. A great example of this in our church is one of our longest standing church members, Miriam Peterson. I don't know if you've ever prayed with Miriam Peterson, but but if you could be uh, next to her right before she goes to bed, every night Miriam prays name by name for all these people that she's invested her life into. Praying that God would continue to grow them, praying that God would continue to mature them. That is what Paul is talking about here. This is an area that I, friends, want to grow, and I hope you do too. Why does Paul spend so much time in prayer? Because he realizes an important truth. No matter how much time he invests, but no matter how much time he gives to establishing and exhorting, only God can change a heart. And friend, if you have no prayer life, what it reveals is that you think you can do it on your own. Paul fully understood, I cannot do this on my own. I'm going to work. I'm going to toil. I'm going to pour my life into other people that they may know Jesus and grow in Jesus. But I'm going to undergird all of that with prayer because only God can change a person's heart. And so he prays constantly for these believers that they would grow, abound in love, that they would love one another and serve one another as he has served them. All the while, he is full of gratitude for these people. And I want to close with this. What you find in this text is that this whole investment of your time and your prayer, this whole investment of your, of your life pouring into people, it's not just a one-way street. Now, do you do it for the reward there? No. But what he says in this text is that as he is poured into these Thessalonians, when he receives the report back of their growing faith of how they are withstanding the trials, he says something important. Look at verse 7. He says, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What is Paul saying there? When he says, now we live, he is using language of resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. And this is what he's getting at. You see, Paul was not a perfect Christian. I think sometimes we elevate him to that level. He wasn't. Paul, like us, struggled with discouragement. He struggled with fear. But what he's saying here is, my heart, when I heard of your faith, when I heard of how you're standing strong, all of a sudden my heart had its own mini resurrection. You brought me comfort. You brought me joy when I saw you grow in your faith. Is there anyone in your lives, friends, that you have poured into and now you look at them and all of a sudden they bring you joy? Their growth in Christ brings you joy. I'll tell you this. There's a man in our church um, who eight years ago, about eight years ago, came to, to know Christ. Before that, had hardly any knowledge of Jesus, what it meant to be a Christian. Gave his life to Jesus. I invested my time in him. Others invested his time into him. And today, he is now leading a Bible study. He is now in seminary, getting ready to become a proclaimer of the gospel. Every time I think of this individual, let me just tell you, no matter how discouraged I am, no matter how much I'm struggling in my own faith, when I see his faith in action, what do you think that does? It brings about joy. 
I experience a mini resurrection of my own heart. The investment that I've made in him, now his faith is investing in me. In the way that I have established and encouraged him, now he establishes and encourages me. We need one another. And on the day when we stand before Christ, I pray for each one of you that you do not come into the presence of Christ empty-handed. Will, if you are a Christian, will you be welcomed into eternity with Christ? Yes. But will you have anything to boast in? Will you have anything to take joy in? Will there be people that you can look around the throne of Christ and say, I threw my life into theirs. I spent time with them. I prayed with them. I established them. I exhorted them. And now I get to stand praising Jesus for all eternity with them. If you have people like that, don't we want more? We are called to live this way with one another and with the lost in our city. And so with that in mind, I want to pray this prayer over you as we close in the same way that he prayed it over the Thessalonians. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints.